Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode here, Your Revolution, Los Angeles. I am your host, Chris Rod. We have with us an amazing, an amazing uh, interview with Dr. Peter Kalmas, who is a climate scientist and writer. He's a data scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, speaking here um, separately, just as an individual from that. So, Peter, how's it going? Hey, it's uh, going okay, except I got some serious smoke here in Altadena where I am. So that's why I'm sitting in my bedroom with the door shut and the windows literally taped up and the one HEPA filter that we have going on because I'm kind of sensitive. Oh my gosh, yeah, and that is <laughs> a huge issue right now. So yeah, so yeah. this is Los Angeles based. We're trying to get you know people in LA to really become active in understanding um, you know, the reality of climate science and what action we absolutely need to take. Um, so the fact that you're here in LA County, I love that. Thank you so much. Really, thank you for your time. Let's get right into it because we don't want to, you know, waste anybody else's time, your time, you know, or anything else either. Um, so I'm just going to get quickly into an op-ed in the LA Times. I just want to kind of jump into this part and then really get into, you know, my... Um, my the the bits and pieces about like the politics of it the money that's involved with it um climate denial etc cetera, etc cetera. um so you put in, in an op-ed in the la times that just came out um yesterday saying hundred your quote quote as hundreds of millions of dead dried out trees throughout the western united states don't just burn more easily they explode so now we're dealing with exploding trees People out here are probably going to say, oh, another climate alarmist. Now they're talking about exploding trees. Next thing you know, it's exploding wildlife. When are they going to end? So let's talk about that because I know that what the research you have is not BS. What's going on there? Well, I mean, these trees are, they're, you know, full of pine needles. They're dead and they're just extremely, extremely flammable. So I saw, I saw some reports from, uh, I think, firefighters that were talking about this phenomenon. So I haven't, I should be clear, I haven't witnessed it myself, uh, fortunately, actually. But, but I mean, we've, we've had so many years of drought in California and the, many of the forests have been stressed by drought and by heat. And then uh, beetles move in and they get under the bark and they kill the trees. And for many, many years, I'm an avid backpacker. And in the Sierra and the, you know, the San Gabriels, I've seen um, just so many swaths of dead brown trees, some of them really big, really big swaths. And you just think to yourself, man, if there was like one match in that thing, it's just going to go up real fast. And that's exactly what we're seeing. In right. some ways, it's not rocket science at all. <laughs> right, so, right. They're so yeah. well, well dried and degraded. Yeah, I meant that. They're I read so that dry. Yeah. Beetles, and I thought, oh, that's another thing too. All right. So, um, so was there ever a time in your life that um, you, do you remember a time when you weren't thinking actively about the climate? And where was it that you, you know, went from that to your understanding of it and to where you're at today? Yeah, so um, uh, it's interesting. I've just been thinking the last few days with all this smoke. Uh, when I was in, I was like sixth grade or something, fifth, sixth grade, uh, that was the first time I ever heard about global warming. And um, there's this kid in my class and he drew this picture, you know, it was back to the, remember we had those like pap papers where you had like drew the picture on the top and then you wrote a little bit on the bottom. Oh, uh, right, maybe, yeah. maybe it was like fourth grade or something. I don't know. Yeah, but, um, he, he, his picture um, at the time, I'm like, man, man, you're being alarmist. It had like all these squiggles, which represented like smog or smoke. Then you can see some guys like feet 
just his, his like the bottoms of his legs and his feet coming out from under the smoke. And he had a dog and the dog was wearing this like spacesuit with like a glass ball because the air was so bad to breathe. And I was like, man, this global warming stuff, it's not gonna happen for like, it's like science fiction. It's gonna be like way after I'm gone. This was when I was like a little tiny kid mm-hmm. and it's, it's, it's the planet getting hotter. It's not gonna mean that we can't breathe the air. Now here I am, right? So he was, he was totally right. I was totally wrong. It's happened so, I mean, it's a really sad story actually, because it's happened just so much faster than I expected it to. And then um, when I decided to become a professional scientist, my love was always astrophysics. I wanted to study cosmology, the big questions, how the universe started, where Mm -hmm. the universe was going, you know, kind of those big questions of who we are and why we're here kind of that you can start to get to with cosmology. I realized uh, this was in like 2004, 2005 when I started graduate school in physics at Columbia. I kind of quickly realized that uh, gravitational wave astrophysics was a good way to eventually get at that cosmology, but with a new messenger. So instead of photons, uh, light radiation, you're looking at gravitational radiation, which is super cool. Um, And then around halfway through my uh, PhD, so I took four years to get my PhD, and around 2006, which I think was the same year that an inconvenient truth came out. Um, yeah. I also saw Jim Hansen give a one-hour physics colloquium at Columbia. So he was working a couple blocks south on Broadway above Tom's restaurant. You know, like the Seinfeld restaurant. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, the, yeah. T- the top floor, <laughs> the top floors of that building are this place called the Goddard Institute for Space Studies, which is actually a NASA center. And J- and James Hansen was the director of that center, and he was speaking truth to power way back then and getting in trouble with the Bush administration. So. Um, He came and he talked about the planet's energy being unbalanced. So more energy coming in than going out, which meant things were heating up. That's called radiative forcing. And the implications are profound. It's what we're experiencing now, global heating and all the impacts that go with global heating. So this was me, a little like astrophysics PhD student in 2006. I was like on the edge of my seat. Man, this this is crazy. If this is real, we got to do something about this because this is very serious. This is our one and only planet, Earth. And right. so I started reading about it. I'm like, this is real. This is serious. And that's what turned me into climate. For me, the science alone was enough to be a climate activist. And around that same time, uh, my, my first son was born in 2006. My second son, I've got two boys, uh, was born in 2008. Awesome. And that totally shifted my perspective away from just selfishly worrying about me and my own career and thinking about them and thinking about the future more. Right. And so over the years, I got more and more worried about uh, global heating. In 2008, when I graduated, I got an offer to be a postdoc studying climate science at GIS, right, you know, down the street from Columbia. But I really wanted to leave New York City. I was ready to leave at that point. I wanted to go to California and things were really popping off for me in gravitational wave astrophysics. I was like doing really well. I'm like, this is amazing. I'm going to, I'm going to be a professor in physics and study this the rest Mm -hmm. of my life. So I wasn't quite ready to make that career change. It's very hard to change careers, to make such a big career shift when you're a scientist. Mm. But then uh, I got, kept getting more worried. And finally in 2011, I started thinking about seriously changing. And 2012 was when I stopped doing astrophysics and became basically a climate scientist and moved from Caltech. That's where I was doing, Caltech was one of the great centers for gravitational waves. And I moved a few miles up the hill towards the mountains to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And that's where I am now. That's, that's, that's my awesome. story in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah. perfect. Because then 
so then so now so now you're at nasa and um well it's funny it was preparing for this interview i thought of all right great i'm gonna go um on one of my family members facebook because i remember that he would actually show stuff on there that came from supposedly came from nasa and he said look at this like they're showing they're they're debunking um climate change Mm -hmm. i thought how is that even possible or you know because then i would go to the nasa's like you know the dot gov and and check that out and you could see there where it shows no the evidence is clear and here's why and it breaks down every little part um have you heard of that any disinformation that either comes from nasa itself or there's other people posing as nasa yeah how how do they do that or what is that i have the deepest deepest respect for nasa and i've never seen them post any misinformation whatsoever. Um, they tend to, to be a little bit nervous about me speaking out, um, kind of understandably. Uh, so that activism, being a scientist activist at NASA has been a little bit of a challenge and it feels like walking, walking a tightrope. But in terms of promulgating misinformation, I've never, ever seen NASA do that. So, so they've, they've, they've managed through the Trump years to pr- pretty much be, so many other agencies I think have, have been much more severely effective, both in terms of their ability to do the science and to, and to present the good information, and in terms of their budget than NASA. NASA has kind of kept flying, I think, pretty much on the straight and narrow throughout this whole Trump administration. Right, and even before that, and, and, and I apologize too, because on that, uh, what I mean is that every time I look at NASA, it's, it's consistent. Mm-hmm. But oh, yeah. for whatever reason, there's people out there that either misconstrue the NASA information or whatever it is, you know, oh. and they'll say, oh, look, this is from them. So it has to be like true, but then I'll look at it. Well, okay, so I'm not exactly sure what you're talking about, but one yeah. thing I've noticed, and, and this is a big part of the reason why I wrote that op-ed, is that I've noticed a lot of scientists being overly cautious in their language use. So this mm. is a well-known phenomenon, Naomi Oreskes at Harvard. She's a history of science professor. Mm. She's, she's talked about it. She's, she's the world expert on it. She calls it scientific reticence. And James Hansen, to bring him back, he was, he, he's also recognized it and discussed it. And what this is, is kind of like an institutional conservativeness among scientists where just like other humans, we're, we're basically scientists are kind of herd animals and it's frightening to go out in front of the herd, right? So. Um, there's all of this kind of like really careful language with uncertainty and, and confidence intervals and, and saying things like, you know, uh, this or that is a risk factor in, in kind of these heat waves, like climate is a risk factor. Instead of just coming out and saying, yeah, this what we're experiencing now could not happen without global heating. It could not happen without climate change. It's a direct, you know, direct result of human caused climate change which is 100% human cause. So not so. still even now, I'd say there are a lot of scientists who are a little bit nervous to say it that directly. And then if they use, you know, words that are a little bit uh, not quite so direct, then, you know, Tucker Carlson can take some soundbite out of context and make it sound like somebody's saying that climate change isn't the cause of this. But we know it is 100%. All right. Understood. That's very clear. All right. So like I said, let, let's get down to some fast bits really quick. All right. So Exxon uh, at the time, I don't think they were Exxon. No, they were not Exxon Mobil. That wasn't until after Valdez, I believe. Um, but Exxon in the 1970s had a report mm-hmm. about um, their product and the environmental impact that it'll have, the climate, the understanding of climate change and the destruction. Many people that I talk to on a day-to-day basis, one, don't know 
they just don't know about that really. So I would like to, to ask you if you can kind of, you know, you know, yeah, you've heard about that, correct? And, and if you can yeah. give us like skinny on that and what's something that's really simple for people to understand, you know, the basic facts okay. from that report, yeah. Well, there's, uh, so I know there's, the easiest thing you can do is you can go to YouTube and there's actually a video from Shell, Royal Dutch Shell is their full name. And so they're like another oil major like Exxon. And mm -hmm. uh, I wish I could remember the name of the video, but it was from around that time period, like maybe the early 80s. And mm -hmm. it was, it's basically a, like a 20 minute thing that lays out the climate science in very clear detail and makes projections about basically what we're experiencing today. So in other words, Shell scientists knew it and they even somehow managed to talk to Shell's you know, PR or video, you know, department and created this actually quite good video about climate science that you can watch yourself on YouTube. And then at the same time, there was a report and Exxon was making reports, scientific reports saying, yes, if we keep burning these products that we're making, this oil, this gas, the diesel, if we keep burning this stuff, we are going to heat up the planet and it's going to have catastrophic consequences. So, so in the six, late 60s, early 70s, early 80s, you have the scientists within these, these oil majors kind of doing correct science and mm -hmm. saying this. And then I, I think it was just so, they, they, their voices were so quiet that it probably, this is me speculating, probably didn't even percolate up to the big brass. And then when it, for, for a while, for like a few years, then when they finally did hear about it, I can just imagine them with their cigars going like, okay, <laughs> if, if this gets out to the public, right. we're not gonna make as big profits as, as otherwise. So like these alarmist scientists, we have to shut them up and yeah. we have to. And, and so then of course they, they set about very consciously and purposely uh, on a campaign of misinformation to delay action on climate change. So not only did they, they try to confuse the public and say this isn't really happening or it's not really a problem, but they also lobbied politicians. So they essentially bought off politicians in both of the major parties in the United States so that whenever you know, possible climate legislation would come up, they could kill it, right? So very, very effective, a tiny little fraction of their profits you know, probably an embarrassingly, it's embarrassingly cheap from their point of view right. to confuse the public, to buy off politicians and to delay action and to basically purposely take down the planet uh, for, for the next, you know, tens of thousands of generations. So this is not something that's reversible. So they're, they're knowingly taking down the planet for the sake of their profits, even though they're already richer than they know what to do with all that money. Right. So, I don't, I don't get it. That, that mindset is not something that I can understand. Yeah, just complete greed. Yeah. So, okay, so from this now, we know that, A, they knew from the beginning. Yeah. It's clear from their own stuff. There's records. Right. It's well documented. There's receipts, yeah. Yep, absolutely. And then, yeah. and then they placed doubt in the news media, like to, the, mm -hmm. to send out the information to the people. So that way, just when we start hearing about it, then they say, there's just, just enough doubt. For people to mm -hmm. to say, nah, that that can't be real. That might not be real. And like you said, then they put money towards political contributions. So therefore, um, this is all doc documented. This is none of this is speculation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So then then legislate. Then there's no further legislation that actually helps. So my question then. Um, oh wait, I have another question on that. But before I go there, hold on. I wanted to get a simple breakdown of the IPCC report from October 2018 
Because that's another one that I know that uh, many people weren't fully paying attention to. If I ever talk to people about it, they don't know. Yeah. The ones that do know will say stuff like, um, oh, what they're saying is in 10 years, the whole planet will be destroyed. Right. And I have to say, that's, that's not it. But they shut no. their mind down because they're thinking, no, well, if we hear from somebody like, you know, Dr. Peter Kalamos, well, all it is is just climate alarmist. All you're trying to do is scare me and there's nothing I can do. Shut up, go away. What do we say to those people? And, um, you know, first, can you like simply like kind of break down maybe for those people yeah. um, what, what's, what's stated in the IPCC report? So one of the main kind of summary results of that report was um, a carbon budget. And so they, what, they, what the scientists of the IPCC, and they did a you know, fantastic job with this, but they basically said back in 2018, if we can manage to get halfway down to, uh, to net zero global carbon emissions by 2030, uh, then we have like about a coin toss, about a 50-50 chance of keeping warming, global heating under 1.5 degrees Celsius relative to the pre-industrial level. Okay, so they said the, the first milestone is 2030. We should be halfway down to zero. So understand, when we burn uh, fossil fuels, it emits carbon dioxide. That's the main cause of global heating because mm -hmm. carbon dioxide, it's, this, uh, it's got three atoms, you know, two, you know, two, one carbon atom, two oxygen atoms. It's a, it's a nonlinear molecule. It's bent like that, which allows it to interact with uh, infrared radiation that's coming up from the planet. So, any, any body in the universe with a particular temperature emits black body radiation. And the temperature that the Earth's at, it, it, its peak radiation is in the infrared. So it's sending the infrareds like invisible radiation. You can't see it, but you can feel it when you're like in front of a fireplace or something. And so um, that's trying to get out to space. And these extra CO2 molecules, they, they block it. So it's quantum mechanics. They absorb those, those photons. They start to vibrate then at some point they re-emit it in a random direction. So some of it comes back down to earth. So that's why it acts like a blanket. Oh. Um, and we're emitting more of that. So something like 80% of global heating is due to uh, CO2 that we're emitting from burning fossil fuels. The other 20%, most of it's from deforestation and some of it's from methane and nitrous oxide, which is an agricultural greenhouse gas. And there's yeah. a few other things, but those, are the, those four things are the major pieces of this. And what the IPCC said is that if we, get to, if we get down to zero CO2 and we take care of some of these other sources of, of uh, greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, uh, sorry, get halfway down by 2030, get all the way down by 2050, there's a fighting chance we can stay under 1.5 degrees Celsius. So that, you know, the longer we've procrastinated, the, these emissions have been going up exponentially and they had to start going down basically starting in like 2020 at roughly like 10% per year. Mm -hmm. um, and we're, we're still going up exponentially. We haven't even started going down. So every year we wait that, that how fast we have to go down. It's sort of like a ski slope. You know, we're going up and we have to get here. So the more we go up, the faster we have to go down when we start going down. So now That's I would say point. that, yeah, probably the majority of the scientific community, including myself, think that no matter what humans do at this point, it's quite unlikely that we'll be able to keep heating to below 1.5 degrees Celsius over pre-industrial levels. And part of that has to do with, it's hard to, there's not a huge consensus on how high we are. So we're anywhere between one degree Celsius and 1.2 degrees Celsius 
above pre-industrial levels because it's sort of hard to know for sure what the pre-industrial level was because there mm. weren't a lot of thermometers back then. So that's basically where we're at. And then the other major finding, the major thing that that report set out to do was to kind of in gory detail lay out the difference between how bad the planet would be at 1.5 degrees versus two degrees. And the answer is it's way worse at two degrees in pretty much any metric, sea level rise, heat waves, fires, coral reefs, you know, uh, uh, impacts on poor communities and marginalized communities. It all gets worse when, when we go from 1.5 to two. So, I mean, we have to fight like hell to yeah. keep it at its bare minimum. Uh, and I, we can still definitely keep it below two if we fight like hell. And no matter how bad it gets, I want everyone to know that we have to keep fighting because 2.5 is going to be way worse than two. Three is going to be way worse than 2.5. So no matter how bad it gets, it's never, ever time to give up. Man. So then what can we, what can or should our politicians do? Like, what is it then that we should look for in a politician yeah. when it comes to like actually doing what you're saying to rapidly yeah. go back down, do what we can to get back? So I, you know, when, when Obama was elected in uh, 2008, yeah. I was like still like a big fan of top-down change. I'm like, oh man, you know, Obama, hope and change, progressive. He's going to be a, he's going to really take climate and do right. something with it. And it took yeah. me a few years to realize he didn't share my progressive agenda. And uh, then I've, I've grown increasingly disillusioned since then. And I don't think that we can count on meaningful change coming from the top. I think the way change works in the United States is that it's got to come from the grassroots and, and policymakers, well, they're, they're basically like, they're, they love money and power. They, they have corporate donors. They don't want to piss off their corporate donors. There's climbers within the party that don't want to piss off the people at the top. So there's all this kowtowing and this, all this corporate money. And of course, the cor corporate money and the billionaires, they don't want to see change. They're, they're happy. They, they, the human mind is a malleable thing. And so you, know, you can convince yourself that climate change isn't gonna affect you. And I think that's what's happening with the billionaire, the donor class. Right. So they, they don't want change. They want the status quo to, to keep going. They want income inequality to grow even bigger than it has over the last 40 years. They don't care about the people at the bottom. They're insulated from it. They don't, they can't, they've lost their ability to empathize with the common people. So and we, we've seen that so clearly with COVID, right? So mm -hmm. we can't expect change to come from the top. Instead, it has to come from the grassroots. They have to get scared that they're going to lose power. Mm. And we have to start taking power as the grassroots. And that's when we're going to get change. Okay. Right. So, so, so what I am advocating everyone do is to help the, the grassroots climate movement and the class. And, and now we know that it's connected with everything else. It's, co you know, it's connected to racial justice. It's connected mm -hmm. to economic justice. Um, all, it's in, connected to indi indigenous justice so strongly. So all of this stuff, all of this inju injustice comes from this colonial extractivist mindset of just wanting profit and wanting the stock market to go up at all costs, wanting economic growth on a finite planet to continue at all costs while we trash everything, right? That's the extractivist mindset uh, that was willing to enslave black bodies that was willing to commit genocide to indigenous peoples without a second thought. And now it's basically committing climate genocide, right? So um, all of these movements have to come together. I would mm -hmm. like to see them realize that the thing that's probably gonna kill the most people the fastest is climate and ecological breakdown. 
that's my opinion. I think now with these fires, with the whole West Coast burning up and yeah. people not being able to breathe anymore, I think more and more people are coming to the same conclusion. So I, I reached this conclusion a decade and a half ago. Right. Uh, every, you know, I wish I'd reached it sooner than that, but everyone's mm -hmm. coming to it at their own time. And I think more and more people are realizing that, hey, this is actually a life or death thing. And right. we're in the process of losing our entire planet. Okay. So I want to see all of these movements come together yeah. and, and, and make climate justice a priority. And then you, you campaign for climate candidates like Ed Markey. You know, Pelosi tried to get Ed Markey. She primaried right. Ed Markey. He's one yeah. of the co-authors of the Green New Deal, right? She yes. said Green Deem or Dream or whatever, right? Whatever. We have to come together to get rid of politicians like that. And by the way, I feel like the grassroots climate movement should be supporting uh, Shahid Buttar. Shahid Buttar, yep, absolutely. They're, they're not. They're not because uh, because there's there's some issues there. There was a um, a, 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 a verbal sexual harassment claim against him, which is unproven. And that's very, very unfortunate. But, um, you know, I don't want to downplay that. But on one hand, you have that. And on the other hand, you have the whole Western United States going up in flames, right? And this is, we know, scientists know this will get worse if we keep yeah. emitting fossil fuels. So I think the left has to learn to kind of choose its battles a little bit. And, and I think that you know, as a, we need a billion climate activists, we need more and more people kind of out in the streets, writing about this, singing about this, doing art about this, talking about this, um, mm -hmm. being in touch with their emotions. Don't hide from your climate anxiety. Don't hide from your climate grief. Talk about it with people. Talk about it with other climate activists. We're all in this, this emotional climate space together. Yeah. And I've seen people that that's too frightening. They, they're going to be too anxious if they let this in. So mm -hmm. that's a kind of denial. That's an emotional denial, which makes it very hard to get really involved with the movement, right? So one of the first things you could do to become an effective climate activist is, is basically look these, these difficult emotions, these painful emotions that we're losing so much on this planet, look those right in the face and start talking about them. Cry about it. Cry about it with other activists. They're right. We're all crying about this. But then we, we realize, all right, we want to save what's left and we want to do everything we possibly can. And we're going to fight like hell. We're going to fight as hard as we can. But it's very hard to, to get to that point when you're yeah. hold, holding these emotions at arm's length. Okay. So, um, yeah, that's, I guess that's my theory of change. Right. Yeah, and that's a, yeah, that's a fantastic point I hadn't thought of. So I'm glad you shared that because I'm sure people are held back from that. Um, the other part that I know some people are I've held back. Oh, oh God, that's, that's, like I said, I'm, I'm really thankful you brought that perspective because I'm sure there's others who haven't, there's others that are feeling what you're, what you just stated. And now they know they're not alone and this should activate those people to go out. The I other so. problem that I have seen, like I said, from people from my own family, you know, that will discourage you and say stuff like, um, okay, but. Like, if you're saying the corporations are giving money to the media to sow disinformation, well, we say the government is giving money to these universities and other places that study, um, you know, climate science. They're coming up with BS just trying to undermine, um, you know, these great industries that are doing well. Is there any truth to that? No, I mean, you know, there's this great thing. It's like... Um, uh, this, you know, imagine that this plucky band of, uh, of, of oil CEOs is fighting this like conspiracy of climate scientists, right? Uh -huh. It's exactly the other way around. I mean, the cli climate scientists are not in this for the money. We're, we're castigated at every turn. I get hate emails, you know, t 
emails talking about you know nazis and how i should have you know been destroyed in the holocaust and stuff like it's crazy what the kind of stuff that i get i think um they're bad people they're bad yeah, people it, w- <laughs> you know women climate activists and climate scientists have it far worse because oh, i think they're seen as as targets more than than men are so um we are not in this for the money we're not in this for like an easy career path Right. Um, well, we got in this, let's be honest, you know, almost every, I, I'm a little bit of an anomaly because I just wanted to do astrophysics and, and just yeah. study the wonders of the universe. I, yeah, I was yeah. a very, I'm an idealistic scientist, but it felt like fiddling while, while Rome was burning. So I had to switch into earth science. So, so for me, this, the, the choosing what I study as a scientist, choosing what I spend my life devoting my intellectual powers to, to me, that's that's not completely devoid from activism, right? Because I'm I'm perfectly, I'm free to choose what I work on, right? And I choose to work on stuff that will hopefully help shift the needle and help wake people up and help us understand what's happening to this planet that I love so much. Yeah. A lot of Earth scientists just got on it because they love this planet and they didn't they don't want to be activists. And now some of them are realizing this is so bad they have no choice but to speak up. They can't sit on the sidelines anymore. And it's it's brutal the kinds of attacks they get from climate deniers, right? So right. we're we're it's 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 outlandish to think that we're in this for the money or that we're just like kind of like you know, we're, we're conspiring. I mean, the, right. the, if, if, if there was a way for scientists to credibly say like something else was causing this uh, and it could survive peer review, it could survive like being the analysis being done again by other scientists, you'd be world famous. You'd get the Nobel Prize. And, right. and so there's a huge incentive to actually yeah. be a skeptic. So climate scientists, right. scientists are the true skeptics. People who ignore evidence and who ignore science they want to think that they're all like Galileo, but they're ignoring the evidence. <laughs> and, and that's absolutely not skepticism. That's conspiracy theory. OK, so they're so they're not skeptics. We're I'm the skeptic. I'm skeptical about climate science. Yes. And, and I look at it skeptically with an open mind and I say, yes, this is really happening. Yes, humans are causing it. Yes, it's very, very serious. That's that's me being a skeptic. Um, so. Uh, you know, I think now uh, the consensus is about 99%, maybe more. It's very hard to measure this because how do you measure it? But almost every climate scientist agrees with what I'm saying now. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a few that, uh, that, that are called contrarians that, in my opinion, and, a lot, and most of them are funded by the fossil fuel companies. Uh, and I think a lot of them get off on the kind of attention they get from the Heartland Institute. They get invited to give these keynote addresses to these groups of climate deniers, right? Because, mm-hmm. of course, if they have, there are a few scientists with credentials that at some point in their career, they were good scientists. And then for some reason, they just turn wacko and they turn crackpot. And, and I think it's partly it's attention seeking. Um, I, I don't understand the psychology there, but it's a, yeah. there's only a handful, like maybe half a dozen. Uh, of these of these contrarians and then you can you know Catherine Hayhoe and, and a few other people actually looked at some of their analyses and tried to yes. reproduce and in 100% of the instances they found flaws in their analyses Excellent. so so almost every climate scientist is with me on this consensus we're all skeptics we're all like looking for possible other explanations mm-hmm. and the few contrarians out there their their analysis have all proved to be wrong so so that's where we're at it's you can't you just can't i mean yeah the science is airtight right now not nice. like kind of like my bedroom here <laughs> good so that we don't get in uh, smoke inhalation yeah. so then so then just kind of quickly then 
take me through like, you know, what it's like uh, for a day to work, you know, um, let's say, you know, put me through a project from start to finish, because I feel that if people understand that, they'll, you know, they'll really realize that, okay, oh, that's how the process is. Most people don't know what, how, how does the process begin and end for you to figure out you know, something pertaining to, you know, climate science. Let's just, yeah. I, I want to okay. leave that more open for you to say, yeah. Yeah, okay. so my, my, my favorite project right now, um, the one I'm the most excited about, is taking a look, so it's a, it's a data science project looking at coral reefs around the world and um, what's going to happen to them for their, you know, over in the coming decades for the rest of the century. So um, coral reefs don't like it when, the, when there's a heat wave in the ocean. Um, they're, they're zoos and thalae, which are these little symbiotic algae, which photosynthesize. So they literally have algae living in their flesh. So, so coral reefs, corals are animals like us, and they have, but they're photosynthetic animals because imagine if you could get food just by walking around in the sunlight. That's basically, awesome. yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's basically what corals do. They've mm -hmm. got these little bacteria, but when the water gets too hot, uh, the chemistry gets weird and they have to eject the 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 algae, sorry, I said bacteria, the algae out of their flesh. And so they, they turn white, that's coral bleaching. And then they start to starve. So if the temperature doesn't go back down quick enough, they can starve. And then if temperatures get even hotter than that, uh, they could just cook, like literally their proteins denature. So that's what happens when you cook food, then they die right away. So they either starve to death or they die right away. And unfortunately, what we're, what we're experiencing now is a trend. So everything's getting hotter. Every year in the oceans is hotter than the previous year on average. And um, it's my dog. And yeah, yeah. Uh, messing up my video here. And okay. um, Mitzi, go get out of here. Um, and um, I wish I had my dog with me. He's, he's, he's actually our mascot, uh, Border Collie, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so, the, so then you have climate models, which, which can, you know, there's CMIP 6 just released a new set of climate models, and I'm looking at, 127 of these models and I'm um, trying to say like at every point in the world's ocean how hot it's going to be there like at, at this year and at that the next year in the future um, and then trying to relate that to the coral reef biology so and I'm trying to do this at high resolution so the climate models are at about one degree roughly resolution which is you know roughly 100 kilometers on the side so these big grid boxes and then um, I use high resolution uh, data from satellites at one kilometer resolution to statistically downscale these, these, these big course models. And then I also compare them to, uh, to actual observational data from in the past so that I can you know, rank which models are, are more skilled at predicting ocean heat at this point than other models. And so then I do an observationally weighted average. So I'm using these statistical methods to try to do a kind of a, a more sophisticated analysis of when and where coral reefs might die around the globe. So the reason I'm doing this is, is, is to try to inform uh, coral reef conservation managers, say like maybe this, this particular reef in this kilometer spot in this island might last longer than this other reef over here. So maybe we should, should divert more, um, more funding, more conservation attention to that reef. That, because you, know, you can protect reefs from overfishing and from tourism and from pollution running off from the land. So these are all local problems that you can control. But right. then there's these global scale problems uh, from, from global heating 
So ocean heat waves, and then from our carbon dioxide emissions, ocean acidification, which you can't really protect the reefs from. So the idea is maybe if, if this reef's gonna be kind of a lifeboat and it might last 20 years longer than most of the other reefs, you can protect it, make it a marine sanctuary and protect it from these local uh, stresses um, and in the hopes that humanity will clean up its act in terms of carbon emissions and, and, and radically reduce our emissions to try to save these amazing, beautiful ecosystems. That's that makes sense. <laughs> no, it absolutely does. See, and that 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 lots to of me, data, like, different data sources, and then trying to 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 mix these data sources together in an yeah. intelligent way. Yeah. So yeah. So in other words, you're not coming up with something where like, okay, I'm going to come to this conclusion. Let me figure out how I can get there, because that's why I figured a lot of the the yeah. um, the ones that are grifters trying to you know uh, get you to 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 not believe yeah. the actual facts are doing. I don't I, think. Yeah, I don't think there's ever been a project of mine that has been yeah. biased because of my climate activism. Now, right. again, I, I can choose. So the coral reef project, I think it's, I care about, I don't know why, but I really care about coral reefs. Like, As we I, all they, should. When, when, uh, like five years ago, I'd be reading about coral reefs dying and I would cry. And, and so then I'm like, you know what? I want to study this problem. So I, I applied for a grant. I got rejected. I, I made it better. I talked to more core reef scientists. I applied for a second grant. I got, I got rejected. I made it better. I talked to more core reef scientists and I started talking to statisticians. Yeah. So I applied a third time and I got three years worth of funding. And now I lead a team of five scientists, including myself. Um, oh man, so that's we're about awesome. Half, we're about halfway through the, so I get to choose what I work yeah. on to the yeah. extent that I'm able to get funding for it. Yeah. But the, the results, you know, I try to be absolutely as scrupulous as I can. And I think by knowing that I'm an activist ahead of time, I know that if I do anything wrong and then my peers say, you're, you're trying to like make this look worse than it is, that I'll be, you know, pounced on by everyone. So right. if anything, I'm going to be overly cautious. Excellent, because at that point, then they, you you would be seen as a fraud in a way. I'd be and discredited, like, yeah, exactly. Discredited, excuse yeah. me, yeah. They'd be like, wait a minute, hold on. All right, so, so I'm um, trying to do do the most careful analysis I can, right. and if, if I ever have to make a choice, I'm going to err on the side of being, uh, this is part of the problem. This is why we have, you know, predictions that are things coming true much faster than they've been predicted, because scientists are concerned about that. We're, we tend to be overly caught, overly optimistic i shouldn't say overly cautious mm -hmm. because you know the cautious thing right now i think is to sound the alarm really loud because Absolutely. you know everything's burning up so so it's incautious right now to pretend like things are are not as bad as they really are but there's a lot of reason we're, we're afraid of being we're even i'm still afraid at some level at least with my science of being seen as alarmist but guess what Things, in my opinion, the, the consensus, very clear, non-alarmist science that we all agree on is yeah. plenty scary enough. Like there's no reason whatsoever to exaggerate the, the kind of the core science, right? There's more science that's always happening on the vanguard. And some mm. of that is, is more scary than what's been in the IPCC reports. But, the, but what's the consensus kind of like middle of the road climate science right now is, is plenty scary enough. There's no reason to you can scare the public quite easily enough with the really solid stuff. Um, and then the stuff that, that we're still kind of figuring out, like permafrost thawing, tipping points, losing the Amazon rainforest, that stuff is, you know, the, the meridional overturning circulation in the Atlantic. 
that stuff is still a little bit murkier. Like we're still trying to figure out how it works and there's bigger, you know, we're less confident about how that stuff works, but mm -hmm. you don't even have to really go there. The stuff that we are really confident enough on is, is frightening enough. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, no, I totally agree and completely understand what you're saying. All right. So to wrap this thing up, I want to get to two last things, move it into mm -hmm. the direction of um, technology really quick. So um, are there any new technologies that we should be concerned about? Like, let's say, for instance, how fracking became a thing and that just, you know, adds to, um, you know, adds to the pollution, adds to the climate uh, change, et cetera, et cetera. Are, are there any that you're aware of, any new technologies um, coming about that people should be concerned about? At all. Uh, not not really that I can think of. I mean, I think there's there's plenty of technologies here already that's that are kind of like taking us down. I mean, um, I see that they started uh, people have started flying in planes without going anywhere uh, <laughs> for two reasons. One, they want to like get their bumped up to the next mile status, so they'll fly to some city and then just fly right back, like get on the next plane back, just to get more miles. And I think there's some people that just want to get out of the smoke, so they go up in airplanes and they're I heard this. I don't know if it's tr it seems crazy to me, <laughs> but you know, um, I, so I would say that, you know, I'd say carbon offsets might be, it's not exactly a technology, but it's a, it's a, a kind of financial technology. It's a financial, financial instrument that allows people who are feeling anxious about climate or maybe guilty about climate change to keep doing what they're doing, to keep flying in airplanes, to uphold the status quo. We need those people that are starting to realize that maybe flying isn't the greatest thing right now. There's no better way to heat the planet hour for hour than to get on a plane. It just takes so much energy to wow. take that plane off and then to push it through the atmosphere at almost 400 miles an hour. It's so much energy. Uh, it just burns a huge amount of kerosene, which just adds a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere. So, um, you know, I, I would say that if you're starting to feel like maybe that's kind of weird to be emitting all of that during this climate emergency, which I think people should start feeling that. Now, mm -hmm. I, I'm not flying, people choosing not to fly will not solve this problem. I wanna make that very clear. But those people should not be supporting the status quo. They should not be supporting airlines and they should not be supporting the practice of frequent flying. Instead, they should be taking reasonable efforts to reduce their own emissions because that's just, you know, if your house is on fire, you try to put it out. Right. Uh, understanding that that's not going to solve the problem, but it's moving in the right direction and they should become fire breathing climate activists. That's what they need to do. They shouldn't think that buying carbon offsets is enough because it's not. Once you emit that, the, that CO2 from taking that flight, that genie is not going back in the bottle no matter what offset that you buy, no matter how good it is. Whatever that offset's doing, whatever magical thing it's doing, forest it's planting, whatnot, we should be doing that anyway. And it shouldn't require you emitting even more CO2 to cause that thing to happen. Because it's like, right. you know, if you do the math, we only have this much, this tiny le much left of the carbon budget to 1.5 degrees. We have a very small amount to two degrees. We should be doing everything we can not to burn uh, fossil fuels and make the problem worse. And carbon offsets, so, so yeah, I would say carbon offsets is the, probably the top of my list for, just for bad, uh, you know, technologies in this case of financial technology yeah. and, and bad mindsets yeah. so we, so then we just need to move on from certain technologies that are that are now just um harming us harming species and harming the planet you know that that's well I, I don't think there's any place for commercial aviation in a climate emergency 
if yeah. we had airplanes that didn't emit CO2, uh, if there was an alternative, then I would say that would be great. But the problem with electric planes, you can use electric planes for very short jumps where it would make more sense to take the bus or the train or something else anyway. Okay, mm -hmm. but to go across oceans with electric planes, you can't do it because you'd have to have too many batteries and the plane wouldn't be able to take off, it's just too heavy. So the energy density of the batteries is not good enough yet for, um, for electric commercial aviation at the scale we know it now. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, we, we, I think to me, the reason I harp on flying so much is because it's super symbolic. If we, if we keep flying, um, what that says is that we think that we can get out of climate change, climate breakdown, without actually changing anything. Now, all we need to do is like a few more wind and a few more solar panels, and we're gonna get out of this without actually changing how we live. Um, there is, you can't run airplanes with solar or wind. You just can't do it, because like I said. Uh, and so that's a good example of something that we, you know, people love their flights. They love going to right. co conferences and makes them feel important. They love going to far off lands and tourism's great. I'm yeah. not against travel. What's, I think travel is fantastic. But I think we're going to have to say to ourselves, hot, we're losing the planet. The planet's burning up. If we want to go to Europe, we're going to have to get on a ship. It's going to take a couple of weeks. But it's so, we're so great. It's so wonderful to travel. Travel is such a precious, amazing thing. It's worth it anyway. We'll get on a ship. We'll take our Dramamine. You know, we'll get seasick for a day, maybe. Maybe uh -huh. not. And then we'll get there. And then because it took, took you know, a week to get over there, uh, you know, a week to get back or whatever, we're going to stay there for a couple of months and we're going to take the train all around and the train's going to be right. run by renewables and we're going to see everything and then we're going to come back. Or maybe we're going to, instead of just meeting one colleague for a weekend to work on a paper, we'll, we'll go to this institute and we'll go to the, this institute. We'll see 30 different colleagues in, in six countries and we'll make this three. It's how they used to do it in the old days. They used to do academics this way too. I mean, Darwin, he, he wanted to go to the Galapagos and study uh, the, you know, the biodiversity there. We're losing, losing biodiversity all over the planet, by the way, which is uh, part of why I say this is irreversible. It's going to take 10 million years for biodiversity to recover. And climate breakdown, cli global heating is one of the main drivers of biodiversity loss. So anyway, we used to, we used to be able to do our work without uh, airplanes. And we didn't even have the internet back then. And now we're right. learning because of this pandemic, yeah. we can collaborate on our science perfectly well with, with virtually, we don't have to fly to write that paper or to, to be part of that discussion. We can do it remotely. And so, so yeah, I think, I think absolutely airplanes should be the first thing we give up and we should do it because we want to express that this is really an emergency. And we yeah. have to realize that we're not gonna get out of this just by building more solar panels. We also have to reduce our energy. Yeah. We have to start, we're, we're energy hogs, especially in the United States. We have to start using less energy so that we can meet the renewable revolution halfway. We actually meet up more than halfway. If we reduce our electricity use, for example, by half, we have to build one fourth as many new solar panels and wind. So suddenly the whole renewable plus storage problem gets four times easier if we just use half as much electricity, right? So demand reduction has to be part of this conversation. And mm -hmm. so far it hasn't been because frankly, everyone's so selfish that they wanna keep living the same way. They're, no one's willing to use less energy. And we have, to, we have to realize how much we're losing now. And we have to start, you know, coming out of our own selfishness and yeah. fighting for other people we don't know and 
starting to realize that other species on this planet are important too. And they're not just here for us to abuse and extract. We have to become good planetary roommates. Mm -hmm. And the decisions we make in the next few years are going to set the stage for life on this planet. It can be hot for the heat that we're producing now on this planet could stick with us for hundreds of years, making a huge band around the tropics uninhabitable. So possibly a billion plus people are going to have to migrate, become climate migrants away from the equator and towards the poles because it's going to be too hot for their bodies to survive there, right? Other species are starting to do this all over the planet. Humans are like the last ones. We're, we're kind of, I think we might not be the smartest species on the planet because we're causing this problem and we're the last ones to adapt to it. Both. Yeah, it's crazy right, how, how right. we're just, I, humans blow Ugh. me away. But, but th that heat, that excess heat could last for hundreds of years, maybe thousands. The CO2 that we're emitting in the atmosphere, a lot of it's going to be around for thousands of years. And then biodiversity loss is going to be with us for millions of years. Mm -hmm. So decisions we make in the next few years could literally haunt our species for millions of years. Think about Dang. that. Man, you make some great points there. Because I actually, you, you, you actually answered more or less the next question I was going to have. Um, but I do want to just mention it to see if there's anything extra you want to say to it. Um, the other day, I spoke to an, an electrical engineer who is a, a always Trumper. I mean, he's he, there's nothing you can say to this guy. He's hardcore, you know, right wing as right wing as it gets. Um, and so, of course, he's completely, um, you know, he is he completely believes that uh, that climate change is not you know real. So and so forth. He told me. Um, he said that. Oh, there's no way our grid, even in Los Angeles County alone, no way that it could sustain, um, you know, the the electricity output that we have here. Um, so if we had sustainable energy and that in solar panels, the uh, material that's in it is, is super toxic. And that's even worse for the environment after it degrades after 20 years or something along those lines. I mean, it was a very brief conversation that I had with them. Um, so I like how you mentioned right now, look, we need to start, we need to do what, Republicans have been saying to everybody else, which is, hey, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, make some sacrifices. So you know what? I think now we, we should realize, based on what you're saying, that we need to make those sacrifices, pick ourselves up by the bootstraps, and, you know, not go flying, and let's reduce um, the, the energy that, that we consume. Is there yeah. anything else that you'd like to add on to that? Yeah, yeah. So that yourself? Yeah, so this, okay, say? so first of all, I would say that climate denial ultimately comes from fear. And there's, there's this sort of a spectrum of it. There's, um, you know, people on the right, a lot of them tend to think it's just a hoax. And I think a big part of that is because it's just too frightening to accept what's really happening. And then the other part of it, of course, is that we're just an extremely, extremely tribal species. So if the guy at the top says, if the grand poobah says there's no climate change and you're part of that tribe, then you're right. gonna go around saying there's no climate change, there's no climate change. Yeah, so one way to, so a lot of conservatives think, I, I think though are very amenable to talking about renewable energy. So if you're talking to one, just say like, hey, let's do renewable energy. It makes a lot of sense. It's cleaner. You know, I, I don't think that even Republicans want air pollution, most of them. So you can say, like, let's have cleaner air. Uh, it's cheaper now. It's going to create jobs. You know, it's time to shift to renewable energy. It's the future. I think that's a message that even a lot of conservatives can get behind. And then on, on more on the left, I think there's a lot of Democrats, too, who are also in denial, but again, because they're afraid. And so, you know, someone like Nancy Pelosi, she says, climate change is real. And then she says green new dream or whatever, and she doesn't do anything. So if you're saying it's real and you're not actually doing anything at all, that's a form of denial as well. 
Um, and so that's why I say like the first thing is we have to accept this and we have to start talking about it in an honest way from, from our deepest part, you know, not just talking about the facts, but saying like, okay, you know what, I, you know, I, I'm actually really afraid of this. You know, sometimes I, I talk about this with my wife, you know, she, she kind of came to it a little bit later than me. And I think it's cause she, she has a lot of anxiety and she, you know, I've talked to a lot of people like this who say basically to function in my job, I, I can't let climate in cause it's too, right. It's too, it'll give me too much anxiety. I'll shut down. Um, I would say that that kind of denial and trying to hold it away is actually probably more psychologically difficult than just crying and letting it in and saying, okay, this is bad. I'm accepting this. It's really bad. Let's see what I can do. What, what do I have? A, maybe I have a video studio. Maybe I can start a podcast. Maybe I'm a lawyer and I can switch to climate law. Maybe I can bring a lawsuit against the government or the oil companies. There's a million things you can do. And, and, and I can't tell any one person what they should do because what they should do is what's best for them and how they can best, um, you know, use their talents to do something about this. I would say that um, that said, so, so there's two, two more points I'd like to make. Cool. One is that this problem is 100% human caused, which to me is a source of optimism. If we come together and decide as a species that this is our top priority and that it's a life or death thing and that we're terrified of this and we want to, we want, we're willing, we're so, we think this is so urgent that we're willing to stop flying. To me, once that happens, that's gonna be a huge sign that we're about to get meaningful climate change. As long as, the, right now I'd say the majority of climate activists, they, they pound me into a pulp basically on Twitter whenever I say we should be flying less if we wanna be climate leaders because it's a way to express that this is really an emergency. And that if we say it's an emergency but we keep flying, people see that and they, they realize that we're, we really don't think it's an emergency because we're not changing. Right, our actions speak more loudly than words. And they say, no, don't talk about individual action. I wanna keep flying. It's the oil companies, you know, don't talk about what me giving up anything, right? Mm -hmm, right. And, and it's right. very easy for them to make that argument because those norms are still stronger. The norms of burning fossil fuels and, and that being okay and posting your vacation on Instagram, those norms are still stronger than mm -hmm. the norms I'm starting try, trying to push, which say it's not okay that burning fossil fuels are literally burning and melting our planet in real time. So you know, using this stuff is not okay anymore. We have to revoke the social license of these fossil fuel corporations. And part of how you do, do that is by saying, this is not okay. It feels disgusting to get on a plane. It's not okay, right? So, but right now, those norms that I'm trying to shift us toward, we will get there eventually, 100% guarantee that we will. The more things burn, the more things melt, the more cities are abandoned along the coasts, the more climate migrants we get and wars that that starts and the more our food system is disrupted, eventually there will come a point when climate activists say, I can't fly anymore. It feels too disgusting. Right. And more people and those norms will start to shift. The social license will be revoked. The oil corporations will be nationalized, will fo ration fossil fuels. Policies, the Green New Dream, uh, the, the Green, sorry, the Green <laughs> New, New Deal, Deal. <laughs> see Pelosi, um, Pelosi, <laughs> you know, Biden's plan says, you know, uh, we have to get off of fossil fuels by 2050, which is total climate denial. Like that's him saying, I'm not going to do anything because we, we have till 2050. Right. And I'm going to be out of here in a few years. So so policymakers who say 2050, it's just their way of saying, you know, you know I'm talking about this, but I'm not going to do anything. 
um, even a couple years ago, that kind of climate plan would have been unthinkable. So we've shifted so much in two years, and pretty soon we're going to actually what you know fossil fuel rationing and nationalizing the uh, the oil majors right now seems unthinkable. In a few years, it will seem like oh, of course we need to do that. Okay, so th this is shifting very fast, um, and the reason it's shifting is because the grassroots movement is growing. So that's why I would say it's it's a human caused problem. We're going to 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 solve it from the grassroots by changing these norms and demanding more of our politicians and shifting what we think, what seems impossible now will start to come possible. And to accelerate that, please everyone, become fire-breathing climate, uh, climate activists. Do everything you can to wake up everyone else and to, to realize and state, state very, very clearly that this is a life or death emergency. Hey guys, thank you so much for watching this video. If you liked it, please tap the like, hit the bell, subscribe to us, and support us on Patreon if you want to join the cause to help us get corrupt bribes out of our nation's news media. Thank you so much for watching, and remember, this is your revolution.